0: You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen, thank you, Josh. Um, well, hello, friends, good morning. Uh, very nice to be here with you. Uh, and to uh, many, many more friends at home, I hope you are uh, bundled up, cozy, and warm um, as, uh, as we worship uh, together. Just know how missed and how loved you are. Um, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, to talk about Isaiah. It's the passage we'll be in today, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. The passage um, that we read or that Brady read uh, just a moment ago. And so, um, as you turn there, you know, I was thinking this week about what makes Northwest Dallas, our little neighborhood around the church, great. There's a lot of reasons that what makes Northwest Dallas great, but I think one um, that I've always um, loved are these uh, really stately oak trees that you'll find around here. Um, and the reason you'll find them is because they were planted a long time ago. So some are indigenous, but more were planted with the neighborhood and the church 50, 60, 70, 80 plus years ago, which is crazy. And in contrast to the booming suburbs uh, in the north that are just, you know, planting little baby trees as soon as they can, right? We have uh, we, Northwest Dallas has them beaten on trees, Uh, But a really sad thing happened in the fall of 2019, and that was a uh, tornado uh, hit uh, this area and hit our church, and you guys know that, and you see our sanctuary out there. And uh, for me, as a resident here, one of the sadder things was just all around um, this area, these oak trees, these stately oak trees, many were completely taken down to the stump. Some were Uprooted altogether, and um, you know, they they talk about even the Bible talks about the glory uh, of an oak, an oak of righteousness. But I can tell you on the other side that, like our demolished sanctuary, um, trees taken to their stumps uh, is a hard way to see their glory fall. And um, the reason why I think that that metaphor is so apt is because Isaiah is actually going to use a very similar idea when he's talking to Israel and he's talking to us. And so um, Isaiah has this encounter with God, um, and God really purifies him. And and the, the moment that his heart is cleansed, he's kind of commissioned to say something to Israel. And Brady talked about this a little bit last week. But what he says, Isaiah 6, I'll just read this verses 9 through 13 is very hard. He says this. He says, uh, God says, So go and say to this people, um, Hey, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Uh, make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and they're blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and then verse 13 key in on this, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, and the holy seed is its stump What Isaiah is saying is that something is coming for you that is going to knock you down off your prideful place, and what will be left over is a burning, fallen stump. That's the picture to Israel. They don't know it yet. And again, Brady helped us with the history of Israel last week because Isaiah is positioned somewhere between the glory days, the old days, Solomon and David, And then days that they they don't even yet know where they will be um, completely obliterated and taken into captivity. And Isaiah is right there in the middle, closer to the second than the former. And it's his role as a prophet um, is to call people back to the love of God, uh, to warn them of dire consequences. And then in the midst of that, to give them hope. That's what you always find prophets doing. In the Old Testament, but his word specifically to Israel and namely to the leaders of Israel is this: is if you and, and he'll say this over and over and over throughout the book. If you keep oppressing the poor and you keep pursuing worthless idols, Assyria is going to get the first lick, and then Babylon is going to completely knock you down. And uh, Isaiah is humbled. Isaiah doesn't see himself separate. From this critique, he sees himself as part of it, and God makes it clear that he is a part of it in contrast to his holiness. But Isaiah is humbled, the leaders won't listen. They're not gonna listen. It's a uh, maybe picturesque moment of pride coming before the fall, moments that we in our own lives understand. And so Isaiah is gonna say that there are dark days ahead. And uh, he says, because of the way that you treat God, you treat me. And the way that you treat others, you're going to be left like a stump in the field when it's all said and done, a smoldering stump, a sad vision of what you were. And um, like us, as we kind of think about Advent, they were completely unaware of what they would have to endure in the days ahead and how long they would actually have to wait There is an extraordinary promise in what Isaiah is saying, um, but in the promise is the reality that they're going to have to wait for it. And I think what we will find and what we know and what we experience is that we have to wait too. You see, Advent actually marks two different types of waiting. Um, One is living the history of the past as they waited and long suffered for a king and then really the second part of it is even knowing that king, knowing him and realizing his benefits, still agonizing for his second coming, the second advent, if you will. And that's the place that they find themselves and we find ourselves today. And that's actually what makes a lot of similarity in this story for us, both Israel and us. And I think at the center of it is this metaphor of a seed, a root, a shoot, Um that is small and slow and grows painfully slow in a way that we don't see. You know, waiting on God's timing is one of the hardest parts of Christianity, amen? It's really hard. Um, If you would have told me in March of 2020 when COVID started that this would be our reality, honestly, I think in optimism, and I'm like a glass half empty kind of guy, but I think in optimism, I'd be like, okay, you're crazy, like the idea that my wife would get COVID over Thanksgiving, and I would be in charge of Thanksgiving dinner, which it puts my family at such a deficit, <laughs> and that our memory would be sitting outside, and my wife isolated twenty feet away from us, as Central Market and a couple of my aunts picked up the pieces in this patchwork, piecemeal Thanksgiving. Like I had, like we had no idea. We had no idea what was actually coming for us, and neither today. And um, yeah, 2020 has been hard, not just COVID. It's been hard. Um, But Isaiah's word to them, to Israel and to us is, is still this, that things are bad. We must wait and we cannot manufacture our destiny, let alone control our lives. Isaiah's message is this, things are really bad, worse than you actually think, but hope isn't lost. Hope isn't lost. And that's why chapter 6 tells us that this burning stump is actually a holy seed. That's the one part I didn't read. That the burning stump is a holy seed, a seed that survives into a future sign of hope, holding on to the promise of 2 Samuel 7, that a king in David's line will rule and reign eternally. And so Isaiah actually spends chapter 7 through 12 introducing this king. And in chapter 7, he's going to say he's Emmanuel, and he's going to sound like a lot of what we sung. But Isaiah 11, our text, is actually going to put more teeth into who this king is. And so in this passage today, what we'll see is the man of hope, the manifestation of his good kingdom, and the marvel of the man that we can certainly trust, but must train our hearts to wait. And so we'll look at the man the manifestation and the marvel of this king. So let's read Isaiah 11, and I'll read the first six verses. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be Yeah, so I already said this, but the stump of Jesse, okay, this is really important, okay? Jesse's David's dad, okay? And so what Isaiah is saying here is that this promise of 2 Samuel 7, that there will be a house built forever and a throne, a son of David, if you will, will sit on that throne. This is Isaiah saying that promise is still in effect through the stump of Jesse, who's David's dad, But there's this, uh, there's a lot of real time, interesting stuff going on in the book of Isaiah. And one is the contrast that you'll see between this king, this future king, and then the current king. And the current king's name is Ahaz. And you'll find his name all throughout the book, especially the first part. Ahaz is the 12th king of Judah. um, And he really is the stuff that like um, bad leadership is made of. Um, especially distrust in male leadership. Like if you want a a case study, it's King Ahaz. Okay, so like he, I mean, just a snapshot. He oppressed people. Uh, He was political, like way political. He was crooked. He faked repentance. Um, Posterity posterity didn't really welcome him. Like like the, the later rabbis would say, he's not welcomed into the hall of fame we're actually going to put him in the other place because this dude was really only about himself. And um, what's really interesting here, and this is easy to miss in verse one, is that Isaiah is saying that he will not be that. This man, the future king, he will be fruitful. Just sit in that. Like just sit in that, like in our 2020 reality with, I mean, always, I feel like politically, always having to make the best, worst decision, always trying to just go, what can we actually get out of this? Like what what Isaiah is promising is, no, 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 this man will not be like Ahaz or other men. He will be fruitful. Why? Well, he continues in verse 2. And it's because God's spirit rests on him. And that's something really easy to take for granted, especially like knowing that the day you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides inside of you and you walk with him and you have perpetual access to him. And that is all good and well for you and for your benefit. But in the Old Testament, when somebody said the spirit was on a guy or on a gal, that was really, really significant. Uh, like, like, I mean, think of like the descriptions here, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord, the breath of God is on this king. There's a supernatural endowment, if you will. When you're around him, it's as though you're around God. That's why the author of Hebrews will say really clearly about Jesus Christ that he is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, There's something different about this king. And then verses three through five, his delight is what? The fear of the Lord. This king walks in the fear of the Lord. And just like, just sit in that, like sit in that. This guy's not given to his flesh. What he cares about more than anything else is what God says. What he wants to do more than anything else is to glorify God. His father, and to make the worthiness of his father's name known, he's not given to his flesh; he's not given to sin. You see, there was an extraordinary responsibility on the king, especially the ancient king. One of the ways that you actually judged their ability to 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 be a good king uh, was to see that they the way they established justice for the nation and to establish a just society was actually the ideal marker of an ancient Near Eastern Eastern king. And so in order for the king to actually be just, what had to happen? This justice had to be available, not just for the top shelf, but to everybody. So you judged a king by the justice that he made available to the poor and needy, who were constantly, still like they are today, raked over the coals by the upper class, by the upper crust. And so what Isaiah is saying, in contrast to Ahaz, who in chapter 10, he will be called out directly for his treatment of the poor and the fatherless, that this king is different. And then he continues more, verse 3, He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Like there's a, there's not the failure of finiteness, right? So you and I all know, and I have certainly been the kind of person who has used the sniff test to my disadvantage, me as a fallen man looking into situations where I don't know the details, leaning on my superior wisdom, which a lot of times is just arrogance, thinking I know more than I actually do about a situation. But, but even more, like, let's get to, like, the, 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 the best examples of justice. A fair judge, a jury that's bought into the details, a number of witnesses telling the story, everything you want. That situation is still, it's still inhibited by the finiteness of every perspective in the room. They can still get it wrong. We can still get it wrong. But this king, this king where absolute justice will demand absolute knowledge, this king can provide both. He can provide because he will have absolute knowledge, he can actually lead perfectly just. In verse 4, he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. What does that mean? It means that the king will speak forcefully on behalf of the people and that his words will actually count. And that when you hear this king speaking on your behalf, behalf, you will feel loved, you will feel seen, you will feel heard, you will feel advocated, you will feel protected by this king. You see, he's altogether different. The King Isaiah is describing, especially in contrast to Ahaz, because the poor and the helpless and the outcasts, they were to have special protection from the crown. This man who he's describing is no political huckster. He's nothing like you see today. Even with the best, even the most principled people that we have representing us fail. They pale in comparison to the kind of person that Isaiah is describing here. This king will speak forcefully and graciously on behalf of his people, and his words will count for us. As one scholar said, in a word, this ruler will be the servant, not because he's too weak to dominate, but because he is strong enough not to need to crush, which is a breath of fresh air if I've ever had one. And you go, okay, yeah, cool, Matt, this is great. Where in the world is he, (laughs) right? Like, I understand conceptually this is the king that we have in heaven. And help me, because I need to pray that this is the king that, that, we, that we need to wait for, that we should wait for, because he is perfectly wise and a great advocate and defender of the weak. And uh, he's a king of justice and grace. And we have him, and we wait for him. And yet it is so hard to still wait on a man with this kind of character. And why is that? Well, it's hard because we are both recipients of the problem and we both contribute to the problem. It's hard because of the people who represent us sinfully, and it's hard because we don't help by contributing our sin to the world that they represent. So we're both kind of on the hook. And um, Anna Voskamp, uh, her um, uh, her Christmas devotional is really great, Unwrapping the Greatest Gift. We've read it every night for Advent with my family, and she says this about sin being introduced into the world, and she I just thought this was helpful, so I read it. My kids loved it. I did too. I may have teared up a little bit, and she said this, so the snake sneaked up to Eve, wrapped his own lie tight around her, and hissed his poison right into her heart. God really doesn't love you. God doesn't really give you good enough things. God doesn't really give the gift of love all the time, and Eve fell for it. And she ate the fruit from the one tree God had forbidden only because he loved her, because he didn't want her to die. But Eve swallowed the fruit's juice, and the snake's lie, and death began to flow, slow through her veins, the painful loneliness that we call the fall. And the reason we have yet to experience this kind of justice on earth is because that man or that woman is stained by this same thing that lives and presides inside of us, sin. And so we stumble forward with any idea of biblical justice and we celebrate when we see it because we can. But we also recognize that this man of hope has to come from another place. And he does. And he manifests a kingdom that is very... Interesting for us to look at. And so I want to read that now. Verses six through nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the lion and the little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, time out. I just time out here. Um, this sounds great. And I don't candidly know if I've ever experienced anything quite like it. Okay, all cards on the table, right? I'm even working out some theology with you. Like what I'm reading right now, it sounds like um, it sounds like a Voldemortless world. Okay, like it sounds like Narnia after Christmas. I'm going. This is wonderful, and this is what we're called to participate in, and this is what we're called to build, and yet this is what we still wait for, and there's tension in that. And I think our perspective in redemption history is really important here, because remember, this was first said to a bunch of prideful people who were still partying, and they're like, oh yeah, okay, cool, yeah, tell me more. Tell me more about this great exile. Yeah, right? You kidding me? We're under the banner of David and Solomon. We're God's people. Everything's okay. And Isaiah's like, no, no. This is coming for you. And they didn't know yet. And yet this was still the prophecy that they would begin to tell themselves in exile as hope grew in their hearts. And then there's like Simeon in Luke 2, this old guy who's waiting. He's waiting because he knows and he believes that God has told him that he will actually see this king be born in his old age. And then there's like the disciples at Pentecost, post-resurrection, who are finally putting the pieces together going, oh, wow, okay, cool, I think I get it. And then there's us 2,000 years later, like having history at our disposal and seeing what has actually happened in the promise of a kingdom like this. And so we know who the king is and we have seen his benefits. And I don't want you to miss the fact that like we're actually worshiping here on the other side of the world Like, none of us are in Judea or Samaria. We're actually, like, literally on the other side of the world, and we're worshiping. And we're planting churches full of worshipers, and Christianity continues to explode around the world in certain places. And so that's good news, right? It's encouraging that we have the benefit of uh, posterity. But you even dig a little bit into our history here, and, you know, it's interesting. Any hospital that you would go to, maybe with the exception of one I can think of, is, uh, it not like a, a bunch of like um, secular for-profit businesses, right? So what are our, what are our hospitals in Dallas? Well, there's, um, there's Baylor, the Baptist, did you know that? Um, there's Presby, there's Methodist, Where did all these hospitals come from? I'll tell you where they come from. They came in the turn of the 20th century when a bunch of Christians wanted to make Dallas a better place and serve all people. And so they decided to open up hospitals in Jesus' name. And I just spent some time with friends who are uh, workers here who are overseas in the Horn of Africa, and I've been to their home, and they would point to a country over that way and say it's one of the most oppressive, repressed places on earth, namely because Christianity has never been there before. They have no Christian history. And so part of the despair that they live in is that they haven't been able to experience the benefits of jurisprudence that even secular scholars have to acknowledge to our Christian heritage. You see, Christianity has done some really wonderful things around the world, and it still does. And maybe even this season, where so many miss what Christmas is about, still have to acknowledge that we're celebrating, on a worldwide level, the birth of Jesus Christ. And so we have here at our disposal far more good things than other people, and that's because of God's kindness to us and God's kindness to use. Christianity in a faithful way throughout history, but the pain of injustice still actually really stings, right? (laughs) Like the racial injustice reckoning that we experienced this summer. Are you kidding me? Like our non-white brothers and sisters, like still in 2020 treated less than human. You kidding me? Like even our friends over at... Thomas Jefferson High School, and I I believe in my heart that the people around there are doing the best they can with what they have, but you look at a dilapidated high school building, you really think if we were in the northwestern suburbs of Dallas, you think if we were in Coppell, where I grew up, that Coppell High School would be sitting there without a vision 16 years later, or 16 months, however long it's been later, 14 months? I think no, And so like we have vulnerable kids who are over there who are not experiencing the justice they need to experience right now. And they don't have the advocates and they don't have the resources that they need to flourish because the world is not what it's supposed to be because the curse is still real. And so without question, we are called to build for this kingdom. We talked about it on Monday in worship and prayer. We have cards out here that we're gonna pass out with specific action points where we build for the kingdom of God now with Bachman Lake and Thomas Jefferson in mind. But 2,000 years after his coming, it still doesn't look the way this passage describes. And there's a lament in that, guys. Like, let's be candid. It still sometimes feels a lot more like a stump than a stately oak that has grown back, let alone a forest of them. And so what do we do in that? Well, I know one thing. We have to cultivate belief. We have to, that we do not have the slightest capacity in our finite minds to see what the Lord is actually up to. That's part of waiting well. But as we dig into verses six through nine, I think it's important that we see that, first of all, something completely different and unknown to us is taking place, and it's predicated on verse nine, the earth being full of the knowledge of God as waters cover the sea. Because here's what you and I know. I think every person in the room would acknowledge it wherever you are on your faith journey, that Dallas is not under the full knowledge of God. Dallas is under the curse of sin right? And we see this, and we knew it before 2020, but my has 2020 typified that. And then you start to dig even even more into this like Narnia post-winter world that we're talking about here, and you're going to find, and this, guys, this was even like, this was crazy for me, like the most helpless with the most aggressive. What am I talking about here? Let's go to the passage. Verses six through eight, the most helpless with the most aggressive. Verse six, the wolf and the lamb, the leopard lying down with a young goat, the calf and the lion and the calf together, a little kid leading them, a cow and a bear grazing uh, with, with little kids, and then the lion eating straw like the ox. Somebody asked the question, does that mean that lions aren't carnivores in the new heavens, new earth? I don't know. Okay, that's above my pay grade. I, I just, I'm just not gonna venture a guess, I'm sorry. Maybe, hopefully there's still meat to eat there. But you see the contrast here in verses six through eight. The most helpless with the most aggressive, the strong becoming dependent on the weak and a little kid leading them. And then here's the part I know as a functioning adult, let alone a parent probably drives you crazy. The cobra and the adder, you know what an adder is? I had to look it up. It's a venom. It's a. It's a. Uh, it's a viper. It's another word for a viper, which makes it even more terrifying. I wish they would just put viper in there. I would note to the ESV translators, because there's this part of you where, like, your human being instinct takes over, and you're just like, no, 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 no. I'm I'm okay with all of it, but under no under no circumstance is a nursing child gonna play over the hole of a cobra. Or a weaned child put his hand in a viper's den. No chance. Not down with that. Why in the world is this possible? Because there's no poison anymore. Because there's no death anymore. Because death has actually lost its sting. They can't destroy. They cannot hurt. They cannot hurt. Verse 9. Why? Because the king won't let them. The man of hope will not let those kinds of hard things happen. They will not happen, rendering a cobra and a viper innocent. And that's why, just as an aside, the king's character manifests the king's justice. And so any attempt in our world trying to pursue this justice apart from the king is going to fail. That's why, brothers and sisters, we have to, in our efforts towards justice, keep the king in the kingdom. But we build and we wait, and we recognize a lot of pain and frustration that while this things are better than they were, and they're better than they are in some places in the world, the full manifestation of this culture has not yet happened yet, and yet there's still, verse 10, an opportunity for us to marvel verse 10. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. A sign for all people. Matthew 1 makes it really clear who this sign is, who Isaiah 7 is speaking of, Emmanuel, in the birth of Jesus Christ. And Paul will go so far full circle with this passage in Romans 15 to say the root of Jesse, who we're talking about, he's going to come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will hope. And then he prays this prayer, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may continue to abound in hope. So how in the world do we continue to marvel as we wait? Well, first of all, let's remember that the root of Jesse springs for the idolatry and oppression for all not just for us this isn't a little christian devotional here where i'm just trying to equip you i'm trying to remind you like second peter that for the lord does not count uh does not is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but he's actually patient towards us not wishing that anyone should perish but that uh, all should reach repentance. Why is that? Why do we wait in Advent? We wait in Advent for the coming of Jesus because the opportunity still exists, not just for us to marvel, but for other people to marvel at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our waiting and in our longing for our King, we get to point other people to the marvel of the King as well. Amen? But we also marvel because we recognize that anything good comes at a cost. And I think you know this now. Anything good comes to a cost, but not to us, to him. Whatever cost we feel in our patience, there's an infinite cost to him. Isaiah's going to stick with this um, um, kind of Arbor language all throughout his book. Um, And he'll say in chapter 55, he'll say, uh, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. This is even more joy. But he says all the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. And he says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. But here's the thing, the thorns and the briars, they don't go away because all good things come at a cost. Anything good comes at a sacrifice. They don't just go away. They actually... They actually go away because it's part of the curse that Emmanuel takes on himself. And Jesus will say as much in John 12, 24, that the seed is hope. He says this, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit that the seed himself will have to die in order to bear fruit. And that's why I think it's fascinating that we're talking about a glorious resting place because there's actually two glorious resting places for Jesus Christ that I know of. The first one is where he is buried and carried into a tomb for our sins, and he is rested Because he and he alone has actually absorbed the curse that is everywhere, far as the curse is found that we just sang. But he has a second resting place, not just the tomb where he absorbs the worst of us, but he has a second resting place where he is in heaven, reigning, building, and waiting for the consummation, and eager for the full family of God to be built, and being gracious, Gracious and kind to us as we wait for him to. And what kind of hope does that bring for us? It gives us this, that all of this hope is promised in love from the seed of a chopped down stump, the root of Jesse, a child who 700 years later would be born to die for us. Celebrate. Brothers and sisters, celebrate the hope that we have. Celebrate the hope that we have. Ask God to cultivate the hope that you need, that we need as we wait, because there really are evidences of grace everywhere, everywhere in every direction for us to marvel, even if that hope grows as slow as an oak tree. Sometimes for us, let's pray, Father. I am. Um, thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, as we um, as we live in Advent, that we remember what it was like to wait for you, and just the experience of your grace, Lord, and just the privilege, Lord. Just how, how fact that I mean, I just we're just flat out spoiled that that we have um, lived and been born in a time when we have, that we get to see the full picture of redemption history. We get to see not only who the coming king was, but to be under your reign now. And so Lord, I pray that we would marvel at you, the man of hope that we would build for your kingdom And that we would, Lord, be strengthened as we wait and point others to you as they wait, knowing you are the one who has rested for us, not once but twice, taking away our sins and promising us a place where you are. And so we ask that you would come back soon and quickly. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.